I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Sarah Haggy, freelance writer, journalist, co-host of the Scamfluencers podcast, and Vanity Fair verified media Twitter heavyweight. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for coming to Shortcuts. Oh my God. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah. And I guess I should introduce myself because I am not Jesse Brown. What? Yes. uh, Apologies? Question mark? (laughs) I am not Jesse Brown. I am Jonathan Goldsby, the news editor at Candleland and co-host of the Wag the Dog podcast, who has been given the uh, responsibility of shepherding Shortcuts through two weeks when Jesse is away. So that is exciting. It could go terribly wrong but could also be a lot of fun. It's going to be fun. Yes. Sarah, today on the show, Twitter. You and the listeners can probably guess why we're talking about it today, but why do we talk about it so very often, both generally and on this show in particular? Also, what is the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, and why are they giving out awards, named after the guy who wrote the book on which the movie Munich was based? Welcome back to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Andre Rotenstein, Paul Robinson, Paul Suburan Herzog, Marilyn McLaren, Shannon Beckstead, Zubair Ahmed, Tracy Smith, and Austin. I'm Austin, a two-way radio technician in Winnipeg, and I support Canada Land because it makes me feel smarter than my coworkers. First PayPal, electric cars, then space. Now Elon Musk's next frontier, social media. 
reaction has been pouring in from around the globe now that the world's richest man has captured one of social media's best-known companies. Buying Twitter in a deal worth $44 billion U.S. dollars. When I agreed to take on the task of guest hosting shortcuts, I challenged myself to take the conversation beyond whatever just happened to be the thing on Twitter that week. Mm-hmm. So, damn. Twitter is being sold for $44 billion U.S., which is 11 times what Disney paid for Star Wars and 44 times what Facebook paid for Instagram, both in 2012, or quite literally 1,000 times what Torstar was sold for two years ago. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, I had to convert to between Canadian and American, so it's maybe not exactly 1,000, maybe like 932 or something, but 1,000 Toronto Stars plus Hamilton Spectators plus various other Metroland papers. The platform's poised to go private, snapped up by the world's richest person in the kind of, you know, fit of peak more associated with an era when the term barons was thrown around more loosely. Major hurdles have been cleared. The deal could still technically fall apart if either side suddenly changes its mind and is willing to eat a $1 billion termination fee, which most of the time, most cases would be out of the question, could still conceivably happen. Like him or not, no one can deny Elon Musk thinks big. But when he created SpaceX and Tesla, the motivation seemed clear-cut. Fly to Mars, build a better car. But Twitter is something else. Musk says he wants to promote free speech. It's important to the function of democracy. But democracy means power to the people. And Musk's takeover of Twitter means he will have all the power to shape its future. So I feel like all of this has sort of prompted a weird amount of... I don't know, maybe the amount of self, I don't know if it's, I mean, it is self-reflection, but I feel it's almost like, like when the queen inevitably dies and Prince Charles becomes King Charles or whatever name he takes and takes over. And suddenly this thing that, where there's been this sort of illusion of neutrality or at least hands-offness suddenly is being, this, this whole thing that we've let have the space in our lives is suddenly being assumed by a person who very much, or very excited to exercise their power in a way that you know they, they think is good and leaving us wondering, like, what is this thing we've built all these foundations atop of yeah. that it can be wielded by one person? Is that, is that overly dramatic? I don't think it's overly dramatic at all. I think that's exactly it. I don't think anyone has been under the illusion that Twitter is a good place owned by good people who want the best for the world, especially seeing how like tech companies and social media companies operate now and how they've evolved into truly influencing the world. But I do think it has a big thing to do with that illusion kind of being shattered of exactly what you said, this neutrality of like, you know, it's hands off. Like they're not like, you know, Elon Musk is someone who is so online for being the richest man in the world who seemingly cares so much about what people say to him, like what people think about him. You know, he operates in this way that seems incredibly insecure, especially considering, again, like this is literally the richest man in the world we're talking about. And I think the idea of having someone who is extremely online and maybe doesn't have like, you know, the best takes or whatever, and who kind of aligns himself with like, whatever the intellectual dark web of internet people. uh, I think it's very scary. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't really understand how that's vastly different from whatever we have now. Like just because they banned Donald Trump. Yeah. A year ago. Do you know what I mean? It's like we're supposed to believe it's like this altruistic company that is is trying to make the world better 
somehow. Yeah, how much of it is about things actually changing and possibly changing, which could which could happen significantly. Yes, absolutely. But also, how much of it is about sort of this all being revealed to us that what we've been doing with our lives this whole time? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it feels like. You know. When the news came out that it's probably a done deal and he'll probably own Twitter, so many people, well, actually, I don't know if it's so many people, but a lot of people were threatening to leave or saying, like, that's it. Mm. I'm off Twitter. A lot of people I noticed deactivated. I don't know how long that's going to last. But I'm kind of like, okay, are you going to divest from the whole idea of social networking? Like, I mean, it's so obvious to point out, but if you're on Instagram, you're using Facebook and we all know what that company's done. Yeah, I mean, for all of Twitter's ills, I don't think it has directly or indirectly contributed to a genocide as of yet that I'm aware of. No, and, and I understand the idea of it being this thing where people are like, well, this is just the last straw for me. Like, these companies are so evil. And kind of it being a wake-up call to divest from social networking completely. But at the same time, I think think if you're on Twitter and you're an active user, it is very hard to just kind of go away. Yeah. I mean, you did go away for a bit in 2020 and then you came back. What what prompted that? Uh, I mean, so much of my work is tied up in having an online presence. 2020 obviously was a very hard year for everyone. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like I had to not be online in the same way. I actually deactivated and then my account disappeared when I deactivated. Mm. And I just didn't try. <laughs> I, I mean, like after I tried to reactivate it and I realized it disappeared, I was kind of like, well, I guess I'll just be off Twitter for a bit. And, you know, it was great in a lot of ways, but I did feel this absence of a community that I did have, like as bad as Twitter is. And I've seen the worst of it. Like I've gotten the death threats and the abuse and like all the craziness and, you know, like it's gotten me so angry for no reason where like people I know in my life and most people in my life don't actually use Twitter. They just got kind of confused as to why I took it so seriously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that part was kind of gone. But also it is important for a lot of people, like as someone who's made their career being publicly facing through like writing and podcasting now and that kind of thing, it makes a huge difference to have that audience. And for some people, they don't need it, but I'm someone who did need it. I didn't go to school to write. You know, I didn't go to journalism school. I didn't graduate university. It has been a very helpful tool for me, especially as someone who didn't have connections at all, who comes from like an immigrant family and who didn't re even know that writing was a possible profession for me. It helped that become possible. And it's not easy to just kind of throw that all away, even though I have found success. So as easy as it is to think like, I don't have to be on it. It's kind of like, well, I did notice it adversely affect my career not being on Twitter. And the second I got it back, it was like work came so much easier. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I also feel like I owe my career in significant part to Twitter, which I think is a big part of what's prompting this sort of self-reflection. What is this thing that we've sort of built or at least our professional lives atop of this this foundation. And what would it mean for that to, if it were to go away, what yeah, what would that mean? I mean, part of what I'm fascinates me is like why, as you said, people in your life are not by and large on Twitter and they're wondering what you're talking about all the time. And I mean, yeah, that's certainly borne out by the general stats where Twitter has the disproportionate attention of journalists, 
people connected to politics. I mean, from the best data I can find compiled by Kepios, there's not really clear numbers on like users in Canada, but based on what each different platform says, they an ad can reach in a given country. Facebook says they can reach about 21 million Canadians. LinkedIn, 19 million. Instagram, 17.4 million. Twitter's way at the bottom, claiming to be able to reach just under 8 million Canadians, which puts it behind Snapchat, Pinterest, TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn. Certainly the discourse is not actively or knowingly shaped by Pinterest or Snapchat in the same ways. I think it's like a lot to do with a lot of things start on Twitter and kind of bleed into other social media platforms. Like so much of Instagram is just screenshots of Twitter. Oh, interesting. I feel like it is a place where... I hate saying this, but like people do discuss things that become stories and real topics and stuff. And, you know, as you were saying that, like for both of us, we have these similar experiences of it being kind of meaningful to our career. Like it also was crazy that so much of my career is put into this social platform that in an instant, you know, after deactivating my account, a glitch made it so that I didn't have an account anymore where I had nearly 40,000 followers where I built, had a whole following. So much of my work was built up on my tweets and everything, and it just disappeared. And that's the problem in itself is that I have to depend on this, whether I like it or not. So whatever ends up happening to it, it's kind of like, maybe things will move away from it somehow. Something else will come up, you know, like maybe the natural evolution won't be journalists and media people relying on Twitter, but that's what it is for now. And no matter what, I feel like we're kind of stuck with it and whatever ends up happening, we're kind of at the mercy of whatever Elon Musk decides. Well, you've, you've mentioned like, yeah, so much of Instagram is Twitter screenshots, which I actually hadn't even realized. I mean, I usually think of what's prized on Twitter is like wit and information. Instagram, I think it was like aesthetics. TikTok is like theater kid energy. So it hadn't occurred to me that the degree of bleed and influence there. Yeah. I mean, I stupidly forgot to introduce you as being a writer for Gawker. But maybe about a decade ago or so, one of the slogans was, today's gossip is tomorrow's news. And I feel like that kind of almost speaks to sort of what you're saying about how the influence of Twitter kind of becomes stories. Yeah. And I've had things that I've said on Twitter be totally ripped off and put on accounts that have millions of followers, like something like Diet Prada, and become major stories because of that. I feel like that's kind of how it works in a big way. I think maybe the numbers aren't really there for Twitter. Again, most people aren't active Twitter users, even if they have an account, you know, like they are lurking, they're not really engaging. It really is a platform for people who are putting themselves out there in this kind of weird way. But I do think it is important in a way that is embarrassing to admit almost. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... I always feel like Candleland in general, but particularly this show, is always really in some ways a reflection of what's on Twitter. So I looked at all the stories that were on Shortcuts last year, and this is not a perfect analysis because I was going more by the show notes than like the scripts or the recordings, but there were, there were 50 episodes of Shortcuts in 2021. If we assume each had slots for two main topics, that's 100 stories. Of those 100, a third of them were things that in some significant way were connected to Twitter. So like four were about a person losing a job or another opportunity in part due to the things they tweeted, a couple were about people being sued due to tweets. Three were discussions of harassment, both generally and specifically, uh, some notable threads that added some kind of real context or insight into something with the news. Two were about Jonathan Kay using dog shampoo, and one was about <laughs> Ed the Sock having a meltdown. And that's all made me think. Like, it's hard to say how much of that is about is, – is that a reflection of Twitter's actual presence and influence in 
the media sphere and how much of that is a reflection of this show's particular choices and interests. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, if we look at this whole free speech censorship debate, it is because people are getting banned on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So much of it is this person got suspended, this person got banned, this person got fired for a tweet. You know, like, you can't say anything anymore because the woke mob comes after you. It's like, where's the woke mob? It's on Twitter. Like, you know, I, I do think there's, like, definitely that layer to it, which, again, is kind of goes back to why so many people are scared of someone like Elon Musk having control of Twitter is that he's been such a vocal opponent of, you know, people getting banned or whatever this, like, quote, unquote, free speech debate. I think a lot of people are kind of scared of who he will allow back on Twitter. Yeah. Someone like Laura Loomer will be back on Twitter or someone like Faith Goldie or, you know what I mean? Like, will he suddenly yeah. be like, okay, well, all these people are unbanned. They're back online, you know? Because, again, that was a huge platform for people like that. Yeah. And Facebook's really, really big for that kind of right wing conservative voice. Like if you look at the top stories on Facebook at any given moment, the top 10 are like Ben Shapiro posts, you know, I, I think that's also a very valid concern of, you know, this like idea of will people still be able to get suspended? Will they still be able to get banned? Who will be allowed back on the platform? Um, and what does that mean for like you know, marginalized people who get a lot of abuse. Yeah. The, the fear is that, like, as as toxic and shitty as it is, that it there are some very clear ways it could get worse. And, you know, I've gotten some anti-Semitic threats. It's never been sustained. Like, I'm just imagining that getting worse for everyone. Yeah, The Onion had a piece last year titled, a Reporter Who Found Three Angry Tweets About Issue. Guesses that's an article right there. That was about a fictional New York Times reporter. But you've, you've had some experience where, briefly working at a publication where that was kind of the modus, right? Fresh Daily. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was so odd because it really was kind of like, if this is trending, if enough people are talking about this, then it is worth writing about, which I understand to a point when you're trying to churn out as many pieces as possible. But going from somewhere like that, which when it started, everyone, you know, the idea was like a Canadian gawker where there will be blogs and there will be full length, you know, features and it will like kind of coexist in this way. So you can get like snapping you stuff and, you know, thoughtful essays. And obviously that lasted about a month. Years later, being somewhere like Gawker, the current iteration of Gawker, where there are pretty strict rules as to like how we use tweets to dictate what we write about hmm. and like the kind of people if there is a tweet that's worth writing about, like, is this worth it? How many followers do they have? What is, you know, like things to actually look at. Oh, interesting. I do think when I'm looking for things to blog about, like, yeah, I'll be scrolling through Twitter. I'll see what people are saying. I think a lot of outlets have kind of moved away from aggregating tweets as content only because it's not really a marker of quality at all or like actual conversation. I do still think, it really does guide the news in these conversations and kind of like there have been so many things that have been started as being pointed out on Twitter and have gone viral and become like real stories. I do wonder moving forward, how will that affect the news if, you know, something drastic changes? But it, I, I am so curious. I mean, I don't think there will be that big of a change, but maybe I'm just hoping for that. Like, I don't really see how Twitter can get worse, but also maybe I'm like summoning something by saying that. I you know it's interesting that Gawker has 
those guidelines now. I mean, like you probably may have seen like a couple of weeks ago, the New York Times had introduced sort of new, I don't know if the guidelines for reporters, but new guiding principles for uh, journalists' engagement on Twitter where uh, basically they said to step back from it. And I should clarify, when he said to step back from Twitter, they were actually, they were talking about tweet less, but they were also talking about just like spend less time reporting based on what you see on Twitter and letting that guide your reporting. I feel like he, regardless of the change in ownership, I feel like this trend was happening anyway, where whatever the Twitter represented in the last decade, it wasn't going to represent the next one anyway. That is also very true. But so many things, so many movements kind of started with hashtags and Twitter. That's the other thing. Yes. For example, like a huge thing for people who support Palestinian causes is finding each other on Twitter, people tweeting, you know, like having those voices heard because Palestinians and those who support Palestinians know that you won't see these voices in the news. You won't get to see Palestinians write about what's happening to their people. And I think in that sense, you know, and a lot of people get whatever, shadow banned or reported or accused of whatever, whatever for this. But I do think there is power in people being like, well, you can't take my voice away from me if I'm tweeting about these things. There's so much, again, that we see as this official language of a quote unquote conflict. And, you know, like even seeing what happened to Ukrainians And seeing people use the language of occupation, I don't think that just came out of nowhere where people were able to understand what an occupation is, you know? There is a lot of benefit in that, even though it's, again, it's not a perfect platform, people still get banned for speaking out against injustices. They still get crazy amount of death threats. They still get targeted. They still get put on lists. They still get campaigns created about them to silence them. But I do think there is something there with still being able to have this voice that belongs to you when you're speaking about your own experiences. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity. 
and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Sarah, as you know, on this program, we respectively duly note things. What would you like to duly note? I just read a book that was really, really fantastic. It's a memoir by Canadian writer and poet Emma Healy, uh, who's also a friend of mine, and it's called Best Young Woman Job Book. It came out in March, late March. I know the memoir market can feel saturated, but it really is just like this beautiful, very honest look at what it means to make a living and try and be creative at the same time and not really compromising. You know, she's a writer and she's had to take all these jobs to support her writing. And there have been times where she thought, you know, like, am I still a writer? Like, or I'm doing this job, I'm trying to make money. Like, how am I supposed to be creative at the same time? And the way it's written is just like, it's so highly readable. It's so smart. It's so moving. It's so funny. Like, I can't say enough good things about it. And I want everyone to read it. Duly noted. All right, Jonathan. What is your duly noted? Uh, my duly noted is Bert Archer becoming the editor-in-chief of the Montreal Gazette. Uh, he starts a few weeks from now, so he's not technically there yet. But it was a really surprising, interesting, and outside-the-box choice. The past decade, he's been a freelance travel writer for a variety of publications, including The Globe. Uh, he's spent much of his career reviewing books. Um, he was editor of Quill Inquirer in the 90s. He was a city editor at iWeekly in the early 2000s. He was a books editor at Now at some point. I'm not sure he's been a staff person at a daily newspaper before. And although he's originally from Montreal, I'm actually not sure if he's lived there as an adult. I mean, I emphatically don't mean that as like in a judgmental way. I just think it's really interesting and striking and, uh, and surprising. Because on the one hand, it's like, honestly, anyone who's spent most of their career, much of their career as a freelancer, getting an opportunity like that is is extraordinary. They wouldn't have thought that would be on the table before. Uh, but on the other hand, it's like, okay. Yeah. Honestly, duly noted because I had no idea. But that is very fascinating. On his personal site, he's described himself like, Once upon a time, I thought my resume was all over the place. I've been an editor and a writer. I've been on radio and TV and I've interviewed people on stage in front of crowds. I've worked with tourism boards and real estate developers, banks and designers, and turned founders' ideas into books. Was I a journalist, a content creator, a ghostwriter, a communication strategist? Did one cancel out the other? Had I done enough of one, too much of another? And it eventually concludes he realizing in the frame of the website that he's a storyteller. So, it's yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the person he's replacing um, or succeeding at the Gazette was someone who, I don't know if she did the job full-time exactly. Lucinda Choden was both editor-in-chief of the Montreal Gazette and senior VP of editorial operations for all of Post Media, which I can't imagine would leave much time to run one daily newspaper. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a fascinating choice. And I'm curious what will, what will happen. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm going to really Google it. Duly noted, Jonathan. Press Progress and its editor, Luke Lebrun, uh, brought to my attention this week that Tamara Leach, who was one of the organizers of the Freedom Convoy, who's currently facing various charges in relation to that, is the subject of the annual honor, of one of the, the main annual honor by the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. 
It's called the George Jonas Freedom Award. It's presented at an annual dinner. And the National Post, Rex Murphy, is the keynote speaker, which makes me like wonder, like, thought is like, is he Canada's Rudy Giuliani? To someone who maybe no one should have ever taken seriously in the first place, but it, that just made me think of like all this stuff about the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, which is one of those organizations with a bland enough name that people probably seen it pop up in a whole bunch of contexts and never all put it together. And I feel like it's worth going over. H- have you heard of this organization, Sarah? I have, you know, been blessed enough to not have heard ah. of this organization until I was preparing for this episode. I was very blissfully unaware. It's a fascinating thing. But it's sort of like that the shortest description is that it's like the social conservative right wing version of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. It is a legal advocacy center. It's a registered charity. And it tends to put its fingers into and intervene into all kinds of cases around what, you know, broadly term is constitutional freedoms, but tends to in practice be the social conservative side of any given issue. Just to give a, just a really quick history. So it was founded in 2010 by John Carpe, C-A-R-P-A-Y. He'd been a Reform Party candidate in the 1993 federal election. He became a lawyer in 99, worked as the Alberta director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and then ran the Canadian Constitution Foundation, which is a different group, until he formed the JCCF in late 2010. It, yeah, it's caught in his hands in all kinds of different things. One of the things I found is fascinating is how it's so become so enmeshed in the media over that time. Perhaps adopting some of the strategies from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, he's very prolific uh, writing op-eds for Canadian newspapers. I counted 92 that he's written uh, since founding the JCCF, including five in the Globe and Mail. Oh, wow. As recently as July 2020 on pandemic restrictions. Barbara Kay, who was a National Post columnist and then wasn't and now is again, was the director of the charity from December 2016 to August 2021. But in particular, he's been a frequent guest on the Rebels programs for years and spoke at their 2018 Rebel Live event in Calgary, at which he made remarks comparing rainbow flags to Nazi flags. So what do we do? How do we defeat today's totalitarianism? Right? Because again, you got to think about the common characteristics. It doesn't matter whether it's a hammer and sickle for communism or whether it's the swastika for Nazi Germany, or whether it's a rainbow flag, the underlying thing is a hostility towards individual freedoms. You know, he later sort of walked that back, but basically he was, in the context of the full speech, he spends 20 minutes basically explaining how gay rights and identity politics is a new form of totalitarianism that in many respects is akin to Nazism. And that was late 2018, and yet for still quite a bit of time afterwards, he and the organization continued to be and continue to be taken seriously by the media or at least discussed in a way that doesn't mention that and and similar sorts of things. Wow. For people who are being silenced, uh, sure are talking a lot. There is so much stuff. And it's amazing that even after all that was in the news in 2018, like less than a year later, that the next June, Christy Blatchford was honored with the organization's George Jonas Award, named after the author and longtime National Post columnist who died in 2016. And there was a gala in Toronto at the Eglinton Grand that was sponsored by the National Post and by Post Media and attended by a whole bunch of their personalities. Obviously, Barbara Kay, John Robson, Rob Roberts, who shortly after was made the editor-in-chief of the National Post. And I guess I should disclose that he was my 
editor. I never worked there, but I wrote for there, and he was my editor for like one year in 2010. Uh, Anthony Fury, who I actually also knew at the time. David Cronenberg seemed to be there. Um, Press Progress reported he was. Also Brian Lilly. And another person who was there was uh, the white supremacist Paul Frum, um, who just bought a t- ticket, it seems, and kind of... Uh, hung out. And it's just weird to see, you know, there are like 136 photos in the album on on Facebook. And it's just so interesting to see. It's like just flipping through and you're just like, okay, the, you know, National Post columnist, National Post columnist, uh, you know, avowed neo-Nazi, or he doesn't like the term neo-Nazi, but like avowed white nationalist. And then they uh, they popped up in the news again last year, or they pop up a lot, but like another big thing was where basically they were challenging pandemic restrictions in Manitoba, and one of the things that the organization was doing, this charity was doing, was that it had hired private investigators to surveil various public officials to see if they were being hypocrites when it came to pandemic restrictions. Manitoba's justice minister is calling for an investigation into the conduct of lawyers from the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms. It's not clear if they got anything, but it appears Manitoba's premier was also a target of a surveillance scheme designed to undermine provincial health orders. On Monday, John Carpe, the now former president for the JCCF, told the court, quote, I apologized this morning to Chief Justice Joyelle in the Manitoba Court of Queen's Bench for my decision to include him in passive observation conducted by a private investigator. At one point, court heard Monday that a private investigator even followed Justice Glenn Joyelle to his private home and had a young boy ring his doorbell. John Carpe was representing a group of Manitoba churches challenging public health orders. Oh, God. Yeah. Do you remember this? Yeah, I remember it vaguely. And then again, like reading again for this episode, I was like, oh, wow, this is dark. It was so wacky. That itself was wacky. But the fact that one of the people they were surveilling was the chief justice of Manitoba's Court of Queen's Bench, who was hearing one of their lawsuits against pandemic restrictions, at the same time happened to be tracked by a private eye they had hired supposedly just totally coincidentally, uh, as though one hand didn't know what the others were doing. And Carpe stepped back from the organization for a while and came back. But it's so wild because it's one of those things that's been definitely has been scrutinized in the press sporadically. Press Progress has done a good job. CTV Winnipeg, for example, wrote uh, a good report last summer. Um, CBC has written about it. But in a lot of cases, it's largely treated as this neutral-ish thing, like the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, which is also very ideologically charged. But, like, you know, a, a producer, Aviva, brought to my attention just this article, you know, about the award given to, being given to Tamar Leach in the Toronto Sun, which, I mean, it's, yeah, it's the Toronto Sun, but it's, you know, one of their better actual reporters, Jane Stevenson. Mm-hmm. But it, it's just the way this, these things is described. It's always so... Fascinating to see organizations that have such long and, if nothing else, interesting histories just be described as though it's just a thing, as, you know, as though we're just a civil libertarian organization, quoting the, the president, the founder, Ms. Leach inspired Canadians to exercise their charter rights and freedoms by participating actively in the democratic process and took the initiative to help organize a peaceful protest and serve as one of its leaders, said JCCF President John Carpe in a statement to the Toronto Sun. I... Uh... It, that is, it's so bleak to see this like totally rewritten historically of something that happened like months ago. Yeah. And seeing, you know, and I, I'm looking at the quote here too, and it's seeing it continue. The resulting peaceful protest in Ottawa awakened many Canadians to the injustice of charter violating lockdowns and mandatory vaccine policies. 
Miss Leach has suffered for the cause of freedom by spending 18 days unjustly jailed and exemplifies courage, determination, and perseverance. I mean, it's not even clear she's allowed back in Ontario to attend this. Yeah, it is just, it's truly, it's astounding. I mean, part of it, yeah, just is the, this rewriting of history, but also just like, is it a matter of, are there's not enough people in this country to be able to actually meaningfully track and report on these things? Like, why is the institutional memory seem to be so short? I mean, for them specifically, this is kind of the narrative that was being spun the whole time. So I guess it's not even a short-term memory for them. It's more like this is just the narrative that they've created. So with the word of the convoy, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so Sarah, as someone who... Uh, maybe doesn't doesn't typically engage in street news reporting, but you're obviously absolutely a writer. How do you decide what's relevant to include in giving background on a given person or thing? I mean, for something like this, so often these kind of come to you. Like, I don't know if people who aren't writers understand. Using something like this as a source, you usually get it as a PR kind of email Mm -hmm. of, you know, this group of people or this person from this organization is willing to answer questions about X, Y, Z. You know, they hire a PR team to kind of get the word out that they're willing to do, you know, uh, they have like a media kit or, you know, whatever type of thing to give adequate information. It's a very transparent process. Like you have the information in front of you, you can go on the website, you see immediately (laughs) what this is, you know? Um, And I don't even think it's like this matter of kind of being fooled into there's some sort of trick that's being played here. I just think it's kind of a matter of people not doing their due diligence in properly researching things that they're quoting or sources that they're quoting. And you kind of do see it. You see it very often. If you kind of look into any organization for more than 20 seconds, it's very easy to see where they stand and who, what their sources are and that type of thing. So I I do think it's really, it's confusing to see them being used as a legitimate source in that sense. That's Shortcuts for this week. I'm actually going to be back hosting this again next week. Thank you for joining me, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. You can find me on Twitter uh, at Goldsby. I am also the co-host of Wag the Doug, uh, which is going uh, weekly for the duration of the Ontario election. Uh, So the first weekly episode will be out next Friday, and then it will be on every Friday after that through, I think, June 3rd. Where can people find you, Sarah? I'm on Twitter at kinda haggy. I co-host a podcast for Wondery called Scamfluencers. That was advertised on a billboard in Times Square, right? Yeah. And I am a writer at Gawker, so you can find me there. This episode is produced by Viva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capacchione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudsorn. And the theme music is by So-Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all our podcasts, please support us by hitting the link in our show notes or go to candleland.com slash join.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.